This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. Even if you have never seen the movie, most people are familiar with Arnold Schwarzenegger's famous line, I'll be back from the Terminator movies. But I bet you didn't know the phrase actually has origins in Ephesus, when Paul the Apostle told the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus, I'll be back about 2,000 years before the Terminator came on the scene. Paul was a missionary, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ from town to town, city to city. And when he came to Ephesus, it was a large city of perhaps up to 500,000 people. It was a port town, the banking capital of the world at that time. His heart and passion was to share Jesus with the people there. And he did so in the Jewish synagogue where he reasoned with the Jews that Jesus was indeed their long-awaited Messiah, the Savior they were hoping for. But Paul was in Ephesus the first time for what seemed like a stopover, as we see in Acts chapter 18. And though the Jews wanted him to stay and tell them more about Jesus, Paul was rushing to Jerusalem in order to make the next feast. In Acts 18 verse 21, he said, I'll be back. Or more accurately, he said, I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And Paul did indeed come back, and the next time he was in town, he stayed for two whole years. And his stay was so impactful, the scriptures tell us that all who dwelt in Asia, or what was modern Turkey where Ephesus was, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Imagine that. Everyone heard. Before electronic technology, before social media, before the internet, from one person to the next by word of mouth, the message went viral. All who dwelt in that area heard. That was a huge city and so many surrounding villages and areas. But the very nature of Ephesus being a port city and the center for business helped spread the good news that God had indeed sent a savior. But beyond logistics that made Ephesus a key location from which the gospel could pour forth, the Holy Spirit was working to bring the word of God to those who needed to hear. And God continues to work today through the Holy Spirit to reach the world for Christ. On the last episode of Verbatim Word, we looked at Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who paid for us with his own precious, perfect blood, and that all of history is moving to what Paul calls the fullness of times when everyone and everything will stand before Jesus. And for those who are in him, an inheritance awaits. Well, today we look at the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God's presence which continues to work in and through believers today in order to bring the gospel to the world and bring the believers home to the Father. Let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 13. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes, In him, Jesus, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When Paul left Ephesus in Acts 18, he had just shared a bit of the gospel with the Jews. Their interest was piqued, and they wanted to know more about it, but time did not allow for Paul to stay. He was on a schedule, and he had to make it to Jerusalem. But Paul made his promise, I'll be back, with the disclaimer, God willing. As Christians, we give up the right to be in charge of our own schedules, and any and all plans we make have to have an addendum attached in which we say, God willing, because, well, God has a will, and his will takes precedence in the end for those who live for him. 
You may have on your agenda a quick trip to Walmart to grab a few things and go, but if God has a divine appointment for you to share with someone in the bread aisle, well, God willing, you stop and share. Or you may have intentions to head overseas for the next 40 years of your life, but if God calls you back home after six months through unforeseen circumstances or closed borders or global pandemics, well, God willing, you follow his lead. We can try and strategize and plan out our lives to a T, but the Spirit knows God's will perfectly. And when we are led by Him, well, the schedules we make end up being pretty fluid. I imagine that was hard for Paul to leave the town of Ephesus when those in the synagogue showed interest. He had an audience in the synagogue that truly wanted to hear more about Jesus, but Paul knew strongly that he had to hit the road again in order to get to the feast on time. And of course, I am pretty certain that Paul did not have the food part of the feast in mind. It's not like he skipped out on the chance to share Jesus in the synagogue because he had turkey and stuffing and pumpkin pie in his mind or anything. The feasts in Jerusalem were all about the Lord, the Old Testament feasts that actually symbolized Jesus. So while Paul would have loved to stay in Ephesus to fill in the blanks for the Jews there that Jesus was their Messiah, he was making a beeline for Jerusalem where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews would gather shortly. And each of them needed to hear that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that they were seeking there in Jerusalem. The feast was an evangelism opportunity for Paul. You, sir, you see, during three feasts each year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, Jewish males were required to attend if they could make it to Jerusalem. These were known as the pilgrimage feasts. So Paul saw the opportunity to share with many potentially who would gather there. It often takes discernment to know what God wants us to do in life. When multiple opportunities present themselves and we aren't sure where we need to be, and we need the wisdom of the Lord to discern what is good and what is best. It would have been good for Paul to stay in Ephesus. There was a synagogue full of people asking questions, but he discerned that heading to Jerusalem was better in God's eyes. There were multitudes there that could potentially hear, who could then take the gospel home with them from the feast and share with those in their own families and villages and regions. It had the potential to be a super spreader event, if you will, for the gospel. Discerning God's best, it's not always easy. And it doesn't always mean doing the bigger thing, like choosing a feast over the intimate gathering in the synagogue of Ephesus. God's value system and economy often work differently than ours, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit to discern what he wants us to do in that moment or in that season. Think of Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 8, who was in the middle of a revival in Samaria, and the Lord told him to leave it all to head south to the desert, where he shared with one Ethiopian eunuch riding by in a chariot. God asked him to leave something good, a huge revival with multitudes, for something better, one eunuch who could impact the royal household of Ethiopia and potentially an entire nation and the continent of Africa. Sometimes it takes discernment and hearing from the Lord to know where he wants us and what he wants us to be focused on, to skip the big event, to be home with the family, to give up the commitment to focus on pouring into your children to leave a position, to have time to focus on something simple but fruitful, to sacrifice another dollar, to have open room in your schedule, to be available for others, to choose not to be involved in every ministry that seems to need you 
so you can be more fruitful in just a few. To step away from putting out what seems like an immediate fire to follow through and show faithfulness in something you have already given your word to, even if it seems less urgent. Don't let the demands of life or your schedules or, or people or circumstances lead you. Let the Lord lead you. I listened to a teaching recently by Francis Chan, an influential author and former megachurch pastor who stepped away some time ago to focus on discipleship and small groups, leaving his large church to do so. Now, I actually haven't read much or listened to much by him, though I have heard fantastic things, but I was at the gym one morning and went on YouTube to pull up some teaching to listen to. And one of his popped up in my feed. The title was Francis Chan's Final Message to America. It intrigued me, so I took a listen. In the teaching, he shared that now he is readjusting once again, heading out into the unknown to share the gospel to remote villages and groups in Asia who have never heard the name of Jesus before. Not exactly typically our move on to the next big thing culture, but a good example of the principle, let the Lord lead you. Paul had to seek Jesus to know what was good and what was best. And in doing so, he stepped away from the synagogue in Ephesus where people were asking questions and open to the things of God and headed instead to Jerusalem. But that's when he said, I'll be back. It took Paul some time to get back to Ephesus and he left some of his team there in the meanwhile, like a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And the Lord sent others there like a man named Apollos. But eventually Paul did come back. And that is when he stayed for two whole years. First, he hit up the synagogue, you know, the one where they asked him to stick around. Well, the second time around, things were a bit different there than they had been the first time. In Acts 19, starting in verse 8, we read, And he, Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way or of the Christian message before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. How frustrating that must have been for Paul. He had had a pretty eager audience the last time he was there in town, asking to hear more. But he left in obedience to the Holy Spirit, choosing what was better over what was good, and he fulfilled his promise to come back. And for three months, he worked hard at sharing with them. But some of them, a faction, hardened their hearts and did not believe. So Paul got out of there, left with the disciples, and started teaching each day in a school of a guy named Tyrannus. A few things before we move on. Number one, God was faithful to those people in Ephesus. When Paul had had to leave, there were others there to share. Paul's team, then a guy named Apollos showed up, and the Holy Spirit was faithful to send witnesses to those who needed to hear. The Bible tells us that we will all be responsible for the gospel because God will be faithful to declare it to us. The Bible says that even the creation itself and the stars at night declared to us enough information that we should begin seeking God the Creator and be aware of our finite nature and our need for a Savior. Paul wrote in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen and that we are all without excuse. So while they were blessed to have Paul back to continue sharing with them, they were actually individually responsible to have continued seeking in the meantime during his absence. 
I found when I was on the mission field an interesting thing, and you might find the same when you share with people. When you hear someone's story with you that you're sharing with, you often hear that you are not the first one to share the gospel with them. It's kind of like a relay race where the runners have passed a baton to one another and different runners complete different legs of the event. And in sharing with people, I've often heard that I was not the first, that someone else, a friend or a coworker, or a crazy religious aunt, someone shared with them or prayed for them or used to take them to church or at least invite them because the spirit is faithful to give us opportunities to seek and find him. And the baton is passed from one vessel to another, fulfilling his desire to reach them. And so it was in Ephesus. When Paul showed up again, there were disciples there. Then number two, we can't get discouraged when people don't want to hear. Paul spent three months reasoning in the synagogue before giving up. Think back three months ago in your own life. Do the math. How long ago was that? What if you had persistently and consistently shared God's truth with the same person or group of people that entire time? We should be faithful and not be discouraged when we don't get a response or people do not seem to hear. We are not responsible for how people respond, just accountable for our faithfulness to share with them. Jesus himself used the phrase, don't cast your pearls before swine, meaning that some will not understand the value of what you want to share with them. When Paul came back to Ephesus, even after those three months, some of them hardened their hearts. They may have felt something stirring inside, but their pride or fear or love for sin caused them to harden their hearts, so much so that Paul made the decision to move on. And he focused instead on those who were hungry to hear, and it did prove to be fruitful. And finally, number three, the Spirit can work and move with or without us. When Paul first showed up in Ephesus, he met some disciples. Their understanding of the gospel had some holes in it, and he told them about the Holy Spirit and how Jesus' baptism was different from John the Baptist's baptism. But since Paul had last been there, it tells us there in those verses, some disciples had been born and met together. Then after the three months in the synagogue, Paul withdrew with those disciples. At some point since Paul had said, I'll be back, disciples were born there in Ephesus. Paul was off at a feast in the meantime, and in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is working in the background, saving some disciples. And God puts these people in Paul's path to teach and lead when he's back in town. Fruitful ministry takes being keyed into the Holy Spirit. It is his ministry, and we just need to be led by him. To go where he tells us to go, to stand where he tells us to stand, to show up where he tells us to show up, to walk into fruitful places or come across people that he has already been working in. We find where the Holy Spirit is working and we join him where he is asking. Paul showed up and there were divine appointments already waiting for him. And the Lord has some for us too, if we will just walk in the Spirit obediently. It's these disciples that Paul now writes to in Ephesians 1.13 when he says, In him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He writes that you also trusted in him. In the previous verse, verse 12, that we looked at last time, Paul wrote, We who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And now he writes, You also trusted. Two groups here, we who first trusted and you also. Some came later to the party, 
Now, the Jews were the first to be introduced to Jesus as the Messiah, and it wasn't for some time until the Gentiles started getting saved too. In fact, at first there was resistance to sharing the gospel with Gentiles. They were viewed with prejudice, and no one could fathom at first that God wanted those kinds of people saved too. It's interesting. The church at first in the book of Acts was resistant to sharing with pagans. They knew that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, so they assumed all who wanted his free salvation would need to convert to Judaism in order to get in on the deal. But the Holy Spirit had to circumvent this misconception, and the apostles started seeing people get saved who they normally would not have considered candidates for salvation. A Roman centurion named Cornelius, a demon-possessed girl in Philippi, and even here in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Even the religious resisted sharing with the Gentiles, but the Holy Spirit reached around them and began sharing, began saving them. And now Paul can write in verse 13, you also trusted in Jesus. By the time Paul got to Ephesus, more and more Gentiles were beginning to believe all over the place. So in verse 10 of Acts 19, we read that all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And a short time later, there was an exorcism gone wrong. And these itinerant Jewish exorcists, you can read there, they were in it for the money. They tried to cast out a demon by the name of Jesus because they had seen Paul do it. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, Acts 19 verses 15 through 17. The Spirit is in the business of saving the world, and we are just vessels for Him to use. The apostles were told that they would be filled or overflowed with the Spirit, and they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth and that they should not leave Jerusalem until the Spirit showed up, because it was the Spirit's job, not theirs, to reach the world, and heading out early would be fruitless. Jesus told his disciples his final night that the Spirit would convict the world, not just the Jews, but the world, of sin and righteousness and judgment, and that the Spirit would glorify Jesus, the Spirit would make Jesus known. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that these things, the gospel, we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we can preach the words of the gospel till we are blue in the face, but if the Spirit is not working in that life or heart or conversation, if the Spirit does not show up, nothing is going to happen. When it comes to the gospel, we can never underemphasize the Spirit's work in the process. Sharing the gospel and the Spirit go hand in hand. It is His work. It is His will. And when we are led by Him and walk in His ways, He accomplishes His work through us. How freeing this is. Is it your heart to share the gospel? It is not wholly dependent on your strategizing or your resources, or your plan, or your expertise, or your efforts, or your talents. It is the work of the Spirit with us as His vessels. And when we, the church, are in the Spirit, evangelism takes place naturally, whether we seek it out or not. 
Those disciples in Ephesus trusted in Jesus after they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, it says. While the Holy Spirit was responsible for the work there in Ephesus, the avenue he used to reach them was the word of truth, it says in verse 13. They did trust Jesus. They did believe because they heard the word, the message of Jesus. While the Spirit is the captain of reaching the world for Jesus, the word is central, that they hear the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. When Paul writes to the Romans, he said, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The church, led by the Spirit, has a call to send out those who can preach, to bring the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. While the Holy Spirit can circumvent the need for any instrument, any human instrument to share the gospel, and you hear stories of people in far off lands who supernaturally hear about Jesus, maybe through dreams or some other out of the ordinary means, God has invited the church to be the primary messenger to bring the gospel to the world. And he's given us a responsibility as the body of Christ to send people with our backing or our support or encouragement in our prayers. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the word to those who need to hear. Of course, missions is not just some far off thing, though. Evangelism is not something that is needed just in some far off corner of the world. We are all called to share our faith and to actively be praying for those opportunities and responding in faith when those opportunities do come. Because as Paul asked, how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Maybe you're the preacher for someone. Do the work of an evangelist, even if you don't feel like that is your primary gift. When the obedient believer and the Spirit and the Word are working together, people get saved. I remember in Slovenia the night a young man got saved who would one day become the next pastor of the church when I left. He was deep into spiritual things at the time, but mostly Eastern religious stuff, meditation, enlightenment, all kinds of New Age practices. And a friend of his had just become a Christian and was sharing with him what little she knew, but the questions he had were tough, she said. And with all his religious seeking and exploration, he had a lot of ideas that she had no answers for. So she gave him a small Gideon New Testament Bible in the meantime and told him he would have to meet with someone to get some more answers. So she finally arranged for the young man to meet with me. And we agreed to meet and I got prepared and I did my homework because I anticipated it would be a debate and theological discussion I would need to be prepared for. I was looking up scripture and studying about Eastern beliefs and looking for biblical defenses for arguments I intended he would propose when we finally met and had our conversation. I was nervous, to be honest, about the meeting, and I wasn't sure if I could defend the gospel well enough, even with all my preparation. So the night came for us to meet, and we did, and I was all prayed up and full of mental notes. And as we sat down to talk, he said something along the lines of, I've been reading the Bible, and I think I need to be saved. What do I need to do to receive Jesus? I was pretty shocked. I wasn't sure if I had heard him right or that he actually understood all that he had been reading in the Word of God. I mean, where were all the tough questions? Where was the debating, the dismantling of the Eastern philosophies he had been steeped in? 
So we talked a bit, basically so I could fact check him in a bit and see if he really knew what he was asking and if he really understood the gospel and was really ready to receive Jesus. And he did. And he was. The Spirit had done all the work. And I just happened to step in to be in the right place at the right time. So we prayed together by a dumpster behind the pizza restaurant we were eating at. And he gave his life to Jesus and still walks with and serves him today, two decades decades later. When the obedient believer in the Spirit and the Word are working together, people get saved. Now, a powerful thing takes place when one believes. And Paul outlines that in Ephesians 1, the second half of verse 13 and verse 14. When it comes to Jesus, he writes, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. When one believes in Jesus, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God himself comes to live within that new believer, a Holy Spirit coming to reside in an unholy vessel. And while the Spirit's role and job then is pretty involved from that point on in the life of a believer, doing the work of cleaning up that old life, sanctifying, empowering for service, enabling with spiritual gifts, the focus of Paul here in Ephesians 1 is that the Holy Spirit seals the believer. This concept would make a lot of sense to Paul's readers because Ephesus was a major seaport. You see, goods passed through Ephesus as they came from the eastern part of the world. There in Ephesus, the goods were made available in the large wholesale markets, where merchants from Rome in the west would purchase these goods that were coming from the east. Once purchased, it was time to ship those those items back home to Rome. They would put them in crates and then seal the crate with a unique seal, a different seal for each purchaser or owner or or merchant. To seal the items, wax was melted. And in the melted wax, a unique symbol was pressed into the wax to leave an imprint. And it could not be opened unless the seal was broken. So they had their signet rings and they would press their ring into the wax, sealing the merchandise, and no one was to open it and no one could claim it but the one who had the seal on the other end of the shipping process. The crates were put on the ships there in Ephesus, and from there the cargo and ships made their way to the port of Rome. Upon arrival, the merchants' servants would be waiting as the cargo was unloaded from the ships. And as they watched the items being unloaded, they would say, Oh, there, that one, that's ours. Kind of like when you're at baggage claim after a long flight, standing at the belt at the airport and watching your bags come off among so many others, stepping forward to claim your bag when you see it and verifying with the luggage tags that it is indeed your bag. And there at the Roman port, they would pick up their merchandise that was sealed with their master's seal that they recognized. The seal was the sign of ownership. It said, that is mine, that belongs to me. When we believe, Paul says, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God makes his claim upon us, and no one else can claim us to own us, because we were bought with a price, and it cost the Father the death of his only begotten Son, so you can be assured that he wants to keep an eye on his purchases. Jesus told the parable in Matthew 13, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That merchant in the parable sold everything to gain what was so valuable. So it goes, the Father spent it all for our salvation, his only begotten son, Jesus. So when we believe, he is not letting anyone else claim us or run off with us. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. And no one else can claim ownership over your life because you belong to God. 
Notice once again that Paul is emphasizing our security to comfort and challenge us to know that we are God's, no one else's. And as we travel through this life after getting saved, we are marked as his. And when it comes to time to enter into glory, he knows who, those who are his because he marked us with the Holy Spirit. Paul further describes the Holy Spirit by adding that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Before Jesus left, he promised the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, that he would come to them, that he would send a comforter, a helper, a teacher, that the Holy Spirit would come. In Luke 24, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Essentially, he said, Do not lift a finger. You will mess it all up if you try. I promise that he, the Holy Spirit, will come. And he did come on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, just as Jesus promised. Why do we make promises? Two reasons. First, because the person doesn't believe us at our word. They are skeptical. So we promise to give weight to our claim. The disciples were likely skeptical that they would receive the Holy Spirit because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit wasn't available just to everyone. Not to the average humble fishermen and blue-collar guys like Jesus' disciples. The Spirit in the Old Testament came upon special people at special times for special callings. Prophets or priests or kings, but not everyday believers. So the Holy Spirit was promised because it seemed far-fetched that those disciples and all believers after Pentecost would be recipients of such a precious gift. In fact, when Paul first arrived in Ephesus in Acts 19, he could tell something was amiss in the lives of those believers. The disciples there were lacking the Holy Spirit. They had not yet heard of him and his work. Now, I'm not sure if that means that they were not yet born again and not yet sealed, but Paul sensed something was not complete, and he shared the whole truth. And there were no blanks to fill in in their beliefs once he was done. And he laid hands on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues and prophesied. But Jesus had to promise the Holy Spirit because it seemed too wonderful a deal. But it was true. Second, why do we promise? Promises are made because something is coming in the future. And in the waiting, we may begin to doubt, but it is still to be fulfilled. So it was with the Holy Spirit of promise. When Jesus departed, the disciples had to wait and trust for the fulfillment of what Jesus had told them. Because in the meantime, they would probably have begun to doubt, but they could cling to the promise that it would indeed come. The Bible is full of promises, amazing truths of who God is and what he does and, and his plans for us, but they do not always get fulfilled right away. Most of the time, we have to trust God for a season because those promises are still being delivered. In that period, our faith is tested. Will we believe and trust and move forward as we expect the promise? Or will we abandon our trust and begin to take matters into our own hands, concluding that God must have forgotten about us so we're not come through? For the disciples, they had to wait until the day of Pentecost for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And while that was only 10 days from Jesus' ascension, it must have felt like an eternity. And the doubts, will Jesus really come through? Will the Spirit ever come? They had no idea it was going to be just 10 days. It could have been 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years. But the Lord came through with his promise, the Holy Spirit of promise. And that is a truth for us to cling to as well. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And part of that promise is that we are marked as his until we are delivered into his hands, until he claims his property on the other side, until we get off the ship to be picked up in the port on the other side. 
And though centuries and millennia have passed since Jesus promised it, he will be back for us. He will take us home. He promised it. And the very fact that we as believers have the Holy Spirit in our lives and see evidence of his work in us and through us, that is confirmation that we can keep waiting and trusting that Jesus has marked us as his and promises to return for us as well. Because as Paul wrote in verse 14, the Holy Spirit of promise is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Spirit is also a guarantee, a down payment, earnest money, the legal step in a transaction where you put down something of value to show that you're committed to the transaction and that you'll be back and that no one else can enter into the deal or contract whether it be buying a home or a car or a piece of furniture at a garage sale, once you gave that down payment, the guarantee, you're simply going away temporarily, but you are coming back to settle the deal and take your possession home with you. The word there in the Greek for guarantee is arabon, and it can also be used for an engagement ring, which declares, I plan to marry you. You are off limits to any and other prospects. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to the church, and we are his bride, and he plans to come for us, and what a celebration it will be. I remi- remember driving to Hungary, where my wife was serving at a Bible school in order to propose. I had the ring with me, had set a few things up in order to surprise her and propose, but man, was I nervous. Even though I knew she would say yes, or at least I'm pretty sure she was going to say yes, it was still a huge step forward in our relationship. And when she did say yes, I knew the next stop was getting married. And thankfully, she did say yes. She took the engagement ring and we began to prepare and plan. But there was security at that point that we were really doing this. The engagement time can be one of the most exciting periods of any relationship. But an engagement that goes on for a long period of time, well, it can kind of lose its excitement and spark, can't it? It is interesting that years later, the Apostle John wrote to this church in Ephesus. It was one of the seven churches he wrote to in the book of Revelation. And while they were doing many things right by church standards, the one thing Jesus was saddened by was that they had left their first love. The passion and zeal of those early engagement days with Jesus had, well, dissipated into that of an old married couple. Jesus missed that with the church in Ephesus. How easily we can fall into the same rut as believers. That as the period goes on between our salvation and the ultimate union with Jesus, we can lose the passion, the zeal, the drive, even the emotion of our relationship with him. Don't lose sight. The union is coming. He promised it. The spirit is the guarantee, the down payment, the engagement ring. He is coming for you. He is coming for his church. And as he exhorted this church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, return to your first love. Remember, repent and do the first works. Those things you used to do when things were fresh with Jesus. Because while time goes on and the drudgery and monotony of this world can rob us of the excitement of our reunion with him, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. We are the purchased possession. We were bought with a price. He has indeed scheduled a pickup. He is on his way. 
My wife has some dietary restrictions, and there are just a few places in the city that make sweet treats that she will eat or that she can eat. And recently, she called and asked me to stop by after running some errands in the city after work to pick up cupcakes for her birthday. She had called and had put them in a gluten-free and vegan order, put the treats aside for her, because, well, if I had just dropped in, they wouldn't have had any. They would have run out earlier in the day. So she got it all lined up, and I just had to go and be a good husband and remember to pick them up. Now, I knew their closing time was at 6 p.m., and as I rushed through my appointments and errands, my eye was on the clock. I knew I had to pick them up by 6 p.m. or closing, or I was a dead man. But I did make it, with not much time to spare, but I did make it. In fact, the lone worker was at the counter, looking out through the windows at the parking lot. She was expecting me. I would be her last sale of the day, her last customer, her last pickup, and I was probably the only thing in the way of her closing up the shop. I made it in time. And because my wife had called ahead and set it all up, I was in and out of there in no time at all. Jesus has scheduled a pickup for you and I. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Whether that be the day of our death, whenever that may be, or a universal day of his coming to take his bride, the church, it is on the schedule. It is on the calendar. He has set a reminder in his phone. And though it tarries, we are to wait for it. Jesus too said, I'll be back. As we finish verse 14, we come to the end of one long run-on sentence written by the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know if in the Greek that was okay, but as a teacher, my red pen would have been all over that. In English grammar, run-on sentences are not okay. And this is now our third podcast covering one sentence that Paul wrote. If he were in my class, that would definitely call for a rewrite. But we'll let it slide because Paul has been caught up gushing over all the Lord has done. And for the third time now in this run-on sentence that began back in verse 3, Paul writes, to the praise of his glory. And that's why Paul has not been able to put a period on his thoughts. He hasn't been able to put his pen down because it is all just too good. We saw the plan of the Father for our salvation, determined before the foundation of the world, and it causes us to glorify the Father and praise him. The sacrifice of the Son to redeem us and pay the price for our sin, which causes us to glorify the Son and praise Him. And the work of the Holy Spirit to seal us and bring us home, and it causes us to glorify the Holy Spirit and praise Him. God's plan is so perfect, so thorough, so complete, so secure, that we cannot help but respond. And it causes us to praise Him, to worship Him, and give Him the glory due to His name. Do you know that's why you and I were created for the praise of his glory, that our lives and his salvation of our lives and his work in our lives would bring him glory in all we do, in all we say, in all we live, all of our days. Let our lives be worshiped to him. He is worthy and has proven himself in all that he has done for us. Let's respond to him. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Amen. Thank you.